on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week... We go inside the huddle with conductor Alexandra Enyart to discuss her new role on the Artistic Advisory Council of the American Opera Project, about being the go-to conductor for Laura Kaminsky's opera As One, and explaining the great banjo wars of 2020. And then in Chalk Talk, the jig is up for German music critic Andreas Laska, middle-class artist has blown the case wide open. Is the pokey next for Laska? <laughs> Plus, the two-minute drill, Zachary James, newest star of the Dallas Opera Network. Will he really take the tiara from the Fab Five of the OBS? We'll see about that. Hey, look, we tape our show every week, every Monday night here in Chicago. You can take the show out of Chicago, but you can't take Chicago out of the show How do you like these apples, Dallas? Five degrees. (laughs) Snow, there was like a pile up yesterday, right? On the streets of Texas. There there was a gnarly accident in Fort Worth. Yeah, that was not great. It is cold everywhere in the U.S. right now. To all of our international listeners, uh, please send hand warmers, blankets, whatever you can. This little Alabama boy is very cold. Hmm, There's a little. Uh, The minor leagues have completely realigned their 120-team structure. So they're like a chaotic neutral now? Exactly. (laughs) I am working on... That was just for Weston. Thank you, Matt. Thank you very much. ...of this. I'm going to make a chart that divides up all of America's opera companies into a farm team system complete with logos. Oh, my. How much exactly. time do you have? I, I think you've been in quarantine for too long, and we need to help you out. We need to shave off that beard and just time like, to take a banjo. Give you something to do. <laughs> Oliver Camacho, uh, Australian Open, finally here. Yes or no? It's here. We're actually in the second week. The championship is this weekend. Um, something really cute happened in the state of Victoria. They had a little isolated outbreak of COVID, so the state is on a five-day so-called circuit breaker lockdown. Uh, so fans are no longer allowed in the uh, stadium. They will be able to return for the semifinal round, but they're taking a five-day break from fans. That's how serious uh, Australia takes it. They're doing really great over there, COVID-wise, a little cute What's little outbreak. Like? Um, I have to say, for those of you who uh, are following the Australian Open and were frustrated that you could not find one of the um, round of 16 matches between um, Matteo Berrettini, my husband, and Stefano Tsitsipas, my other husband. <laughs> I spent all morning long scrolling through or scrubbing through my recording because, you know, it, it happens in a different time zone. Like they're, it's upside right. down, you know, other hemisphere. And so it's like eight hours of tape. Um, and I'm trying to get to this match and I couldn't find it. It's like, damn it, my recording ran out before the match happened because there's so many matches. Oh, no. And oh, so buddy. I. Tried to watch it again this morning on the rebroadcast, and I still couldn't find it. And it turns out, because I don't like to read the news during the Australian Open, because I don't want to see the results, because that's what you'll see right away. Right, right. The Olympics contract. Mateo walked over. He withdrew from the match. (gasps) 
Oh. Yeah. Oh. Actually, I'm happy about that because I don't want to see my two. Loves. Don't want to see your boys fight. I know. <laughs> so Oliver's just... bummed out. Ashley, you're not bummed out about the Bears right now. I mean, in general, yes, but for their most recent hire, <laughs> no, I'm very excited about it. Uh, yeah, so Sean Desai has kind of been like waddling in obscurity in like the lower levels of the coaching staff, but Matt Nagy has just hired him to be the defensive coordinator for the Bears. Uh, he's believed to be the first Indian American coordinator in the NFL. So this is a wow. great promotion. Congratulations, Sean Desai. Awesome. All right, let us talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. I'm so thrilled to welcome back our friend and our guest for today, conductor Alexandra Enyart, who is from the famous Lost episode of Opera Box Score back when we were recording at WNUR. And our guest, uh, interview guest was Jake Heggie. Uh, that is an episode that is just lost to the ether, but it was such a great show. <laughs> and uh, we also were able to talk to Maria Callas that day. Yeah, yeah. Pavarotti. Caruso, Caruso. Caruso there. Franco Corelli. Certainly like... commemorated in our hearts, even if it can't have been shared with our listeners. Such a great show that's now lo- no longer available, but um, we still have Alexandra, and thank you for coming back. And I promise we won't lose this one now that we're on Dallas Opera Night. We've, we've, <laughs> we've, we've got our poop together now. So, Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so um, your name came up last week uh, from the press release of the American Opera Project, which is uh, a council of, I guess, artistic advisors who include Mark Campbell and uh, isn't Anthony Roth Costanzo on that? Uh, yeah, it's a big group. It's a really yeah. exciting panel of, of different people. Um, it's called the Artistic Advisory Council. So it, it's a really exciting, um, I'm honored. It's a huge privilege to be a part of it. Uh, it's still kind of a surprise when I received the invitation. I was like, oh, I, I, this must be to the wrong person. But <laughs> <laughs> I moved. Am I getting somebody else's mail? <laughs> yeah, what's happening? Yeah, exactly. But um, it was, um, yeah, but I'm, I'm thrilled to get to be a part of it. Um, uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with my um, connection as one, but also having done, you know, works like Patience and Sarah with American Opera Projects having commissioned that, you know, it's, it's amazing how this is an organization that's been around such a long time to get to have worked on different pieces that are out there because of them. And then to get to be a part of that, it's, it's a huge honor and a privilege. So I'm just thrilled. Well, can you just give us like the elevator speech about what is American Opera Project? And then I yeah. understand there's some breaking news about uh, your <laughs> participation. <laughs> yeah, on, so on American panel. Opera Project, uh, I guess in its shortest form, um, I would say that uh, from my perspective, there are two major um, unifying forces for opera in America, Opera America and the American Opera Project uh, that really bring different people together all uh, around the country and are looking for ways to innovate and bring the art in, uh, moving it forward. And American Opera Project does a lot in contemporary opera and contemporary works. Um, And so that is uh, that sort of work to bring the forefront of contemporary opera basically in a unified way to be progressing the art. Um, It's such a powerful, powerful thing uh, to get to be involved with in exactly the sort of um, organization that I'm, I'm really interested in and have actually, Hmm. uh, if I was going to be involved in an opera organization, that, that certainly is one that, that meshes with me. 
I would be less of a good fit for other organizations um, <laughs> just based yeah. on my own resume. So um, <laughs> thrilled, thrilled to get to be involved with one that, that I align with. So uh, you have uh, uh, now this is the fairly new position for you, um, but I believe you right before you came on the line with us, we have some breaking news because you had your first like official meeting, <laughs> as it were. Um, I, I believe that's you received correct. your pin. Yeah, exactly. You got the American Opera projector. <laughs> that's exactly. You get the whole thing, and you can you can now go and you can get an American Opera Project's uh, face mask. <laughs> if you want to uh, go ahead and get that uh, so that you can be ready. Uh, those are real. So um, Amazing. absolutely go ahead and do that. But uh, yeah, so we had a meeting um, regarding the, um, they have a biannual training program, uh, Composers in the Voice. It's a two-year fellowship and it's centered around learning to compose for the operatic voice and writing for the operatic stage for um, composers and librettists. And it's had, you know, it's, it's such a, uh, special important piece of um, what American Opera Project does. Uh, but one of the very first things that we did is to take a look at this um, long running process that's been happening and trying to look for opportunities to raise awareness and to help create diversity of applicants um, mm -hmm. and diversify in so many different ways. Um, and then just also the efficiency of like the selection process and, and working through those different aspects. So we all get in this call and just start talking about, you know, we look at the system that's already there, how things already are in place, and then just kind of throw out some ideas based on things that we've done. Um, just to give, you know, different, different insights and things like that, things that come up are, you know, should there be application fees? Should there be, right. you know, it's, it's, um, it's biannual right now where it's like a class and then another class and then another class. Should they overlap? Should they, you know, and so it's, it's just going in and, and having basically sessions to talk about and to throw lots of different ideas from, from what we've had out there. Um, and that's been, that's been what it is, is so far. And then, um, yeah, I think, I mean, that's, it's pretty exciting, uh, to me to get to be involved in that way. Um, and then it'll be really interesting to see how that all synthesize and then uh, turns into whatever whatever it turns into and, and see how all those pieces get picked up. Change the very face of American opera. <laughs> the, yeah, the ultimate goal is world domination, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, at least American domination. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Gotta start somewhere. So, you know, it's it's um yeah, it's it's such a uh, thing is is you trying to connect um I try to connect all these different people. And of course, one of the things that's interesting about um, coronavirus and the coronavirus time, of course, is that we're both mm -hmm. very disconnected and very connected in a different way. Um, and so I think that there's a real opportunity right now for organizations of all kinds to rethink how they're doing things and, and see where are connections that we've never had that mm -hmm. are suddenly here instead of, um, you know, what connections are we missing? I think a lot of the connections we're missing will come back, but these chances to find the new ones may never be as flexible as they are right now. Well, I right. think the, the circumstance that we're in right now also is highlighting how many creators actually go into making opera. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing you know, new talents uh, come, to, come to rise to the top because of their very specific skill that they might have. I mean, we just interviewed um, Jonathan McCullough, um, couple mm -hmm. weeks ago who had to 
direct himself and film himself in David T. Little's soldier songs, you know? And so, yes, he's the, he's the star of the show, but he really is like, he's everything. You know, he's the star of the show. Yeah. yeah. He arranged all the burnt toast on that set. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, people are being asked to do an incredible amount right now and figuring out who, what, what they're doing and how they're doing it and, and all these different stretching and things like that. And, for me, unfortunately, one of the things that I don't love is having had to learn how to make a click track. It's a skill I would yeah, I would gladly give back. We hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I think most singers would agree with you. Yeah. About that. Here, but, here's this. It's horrible. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that hasn't really changed in coronavirus is that you are going to get a chance to be performing uh, in Opera Orlando a little bit later this year with a work that, that you know very well. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so I'll be heading to Opera Orlando to conduct as one. Um, fantastic cast. It's uh, Lisa Quagliata and uh, Michael Kelly, um, both of whom I've worked with before, but never in the same show. So it's really exciting to get to do it um, with them together and to see how that makes uh, their Hannah a different character. Um, in S1, the, the two singers play one character. Um, it's a transgender narrative with a before and an after uh, lens through it. So um, yeah, just for anyone who doesn't know the opera very well, one of the things that I, as a listener to things, um, always try not to do that I, I would hear is uh, just talking about the show without any reference or any context, because I, I totally forget sometimes that like I've done this show uh, so many times now, but um, <laughs> if it's totally new, I don't want to end up being that person that I used to listen to and say, who knows what you're even talking about. We just say like, <laughs> oh, we talk about, you know, Renee, you know, it's, 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 yeah. it's, like all the, it's all like all the weird, obscure operas that I reference that no one else knows, especially Oliver. Uh, <laughs> he criticizes me for it on the That's air and it. I cry, you know. So can you tell us about how this production is uh, pandemic safe? I mean, it already is a pandemic safe opera in essence because of how small the cast is. It's what a string quartet and, yeah. and two singers and the conductor. That's right. So yeah, with uh, a grand total of so few people, um, I'm, I'm not sure what the audience is going to be or how that's going to look. And, and I, Florida. I wish I could speak to it. And... Yeah, it'll be, it'll be what it is exactly. Exactly. Um, but then on, on our part, I, I'm sure there will be um, I, a lot of, of these productions are just creating distance. And the good thing about as one um, uh, and conducting as one is that uh, I have done it um, all over the stage in terms of how close or far away you are from any other human being on stage. <laughs> right. <laughs> and sometimes, I mean, it's the only show that I've, I've done where I've been um, backwards to the singers. Uh, where I was conducting to a video camera, which is then hmm. put on monitors. And so it's, it's like my back to it. Um, and so I, I'm sure that there will be a way that we find all that um, combined. But I, I actually just don't have so many answers right now um, today on exactly what that's going to look like. It's, it's happening in May. So um, it'll be, it'll it'll be, be interesting to see what the world that. is. Yeah hopefully, yeah, hopefully we'll be a little farther down the road. But um, I'm excited to do it. The The one uh, thing that's funny about having done as one a bunch of times is that now every single time I've been contracted to do it, I have received less and less orchestra time. 
um, because it's very, it's very funny. It's, it's like the more I do it, everyone's like, all right, well, can you do it in like half a rehearsal? <laughs> and you're like, okay, let's try it. He already knows like, it. It's fine. <laughs> we'll try it. Why not? So, um, so I, I, the last time I did that, I said it'll be my fastest rehearsal process from orchestra to performance. And it's, I've said that now five times. Well, so, it's, so it'll, it'll be should, my fastest again. <laughs> we should credit Laura Kaminsky, the composer. Um, now that you know the score so well, do you know, like, can you just jump into rehearsal and like get right to the part? Like you guys are going to have problems with this. So let's rehearse yeah, this. I, it is interesting because um, when I was learning um, opera conducting, uh, one or many of my teachers would bring their own scores. And I was like, why would you possibly need to bring your own or bring their own parts? They would bring parts for the orchestra. And I was like, why would you possibly need to bring your parts? But now I wish I had parts for S1 so that I could just show up and be like, here's exactly how I do this. It's written in the part. This is, this is it. <laughs> maybe, maybe for the next production. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when no, you have it's, it's, when you have one hour to perform, to yes, exactly. the it's funny. I know the the first time we do it is is live. It's, here we go. <laughs> yeah. as I've, I've had that exact nightmare. It's uh, it's it's the worst. Impromptu. Yeah. It's pop up as one. Before Australia, though, I wondered if it was a show I would ever feel comfortable doing because I I it's a it's a hard show, and I was right. like, am I am I going to feel scared every time I perform? Am I going to feel anxious every time? Um, but then in Australia, we did it 10 times. And uh, by the end of it, I was like, all right, it's, it's fine. It happened. So, <laughs> and you uh, have like a little speaking partner, right? You're always like the teacher or something. I right? do. Yeah. It's, okay. it's honestly the most stressful part of the entire show. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> yeah, because you have to get up and like you leave, you leave the ensemble and then you have to come back. And for some reason, I'm always like, all right. If anything happened and anyone's off in these bars, like I have to look down and then find where everything is. So what I always do is I point to, I point there's, there's um, one theme in the second violin and I tell everyone, I'm going to start conducting on this bar and it's whenever the second violin player plays. And even if they play it in the entirely the wrong place, the second I move, we're on this bar. This is, <laughs> this is where we are. <laughs> Gotta so have an good. exit plan for new music. That's yeah. yeah. That, that's <laughs> gotta do it. You gotta have a lot of group cues. Um, yeah, it's the it's the emergency plan. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the pandemic has, you know, sort of showed us uh, a lot of the limitations of the way we've done things. It showed us some new ways to do things. And uh, I hear that you've put together a really interesting project during the pandemic that's called Witness. And I would love to have you tell our listeners a little more about that. Yeah, so Witness is, is very different from anything I've done and that it is not conducting, it is me playing the banjo and singing about the woes of my life. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, it was uh, through the Turn the Spotlight Fellowship um, where we're paired with different mentors um, and mine was Lydia Yankowska, the Yay! music director of Chicago Opera her. Theater. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Um, and so uh, we got to work and... Um, basically started talking about what, what do I want to do? What, what sort of projects? And, you know, I, I would circle around these different ideas um, and things like that. But one of the things that I have not explored and as a creator or as a person is, is really in a way my own voice just kind of untempered because obviously through conducting um, it's the, being a conductor is like being um a curator in a museum. Uh, right. uh, people mm -hmm. have put together beautiful paintings and uh, there are so many talents and the singers are there and the 
performers are there and everyone has put this everything is beautiful and then you hang it on a wall and you put a you put a, a light on it and you say look i've done a thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um but uh witness getting to write so i i wrote um a series of banjo songs um and i put together this 55 minute kind of song cycle kind of album kind of um it has a narrative kind of but it's it's an interesting um interesting exploration of of my identity and and my being trans and my journey and experiences um and i thought it it seemed to resonate with everyone uh who saw it it was performed by third eye theater ensemble with a premiere with rose freeman so um i feel super positive about it but it's something where of course it's it's so personal to me that um you know i it's, it's uh certainly something that if you're interested in that i would i would happily recommend looking out for it we have it all recorded um and it should be coming out as an album but i don't have an exact time on that yet unfortunately so um it will be an album coming coming sometime this year hopefully sooner <laughs> than later but um, okay, so we're, we're not going to release date. We're not going to find the uh, piano vocal or the banjo vocal score uh, <laughs> for, other, for other artists to perform. Because, like, if, if it yeah. is this type of project, maybe it's something that lives and perf is performed by other people. Yeah, it would be really interesting to see it done. That, I mean, I would be thrilled if that were to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know what that would look like. It's it's such an unnotated piece, and there are pieces of of improv and, and all this and it, it was it's such a personal journey um but if the there's that one part of the show so... where you have to uh be the teacher and then come back and find the second violin <laughs> line that's right <laughs> very that's specific right. and then you come back and then you're back in it so it, it was um but yeah it was it was great to have the time um to explore it and it, it was one of those things where obviously you know i was i was booked for the entire year <laughs> And yep. I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I have no time at all. And then all of a sudden, everything got canceled all at once. And so uh, I was sitting at home all day long, all the time. And my wife is a music therapist at Northwestern Hospital. So of course, she was still entirely busy, probably mm. busier than ever um, as she was going in and, and um, working directly with uh, COVID patients. Mm. Um, and so here she is doing all these things, being a frontline healthcare worker. And I am home with a banjo by myself and all I'm doing, all I do all day is like, I would, I would sit and I would play the banjo for like eight hours a day and write songs. And, and I started playing banjo eight hours a day in the first place because she also had a banjo and uh, I wanted to be so much better than her that she could never catch up to me again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of, some of us just, you know, baked sourdough bread and here you are. <laughs> Having banjo fights with your wife. Um, can, can you tell us before we... I uh, have to end this interview um, a little bit about working with Lydia because we just love her so much and we want to mm -hmm. hear, we want to hear nice things about her. If you have nothing yeah. nice to say, then <laughs> oh, you are free fantastic. to go. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I mean, Lydia, Lydia is um, hard not to look at her and say that that is a powerful force in opera, in the world, mm -hmm. just in Absolutely. everything that she does. And um, having her in your corner and on your side, um, it's, it's really powerful. And, Certainly, um, the big thing that I struggled with in creating this piece that, that she really helped me find and do um, was kind of even having the confidence to be like, I'm allowed to talk about myself. I'm allowed to tell my own story. I'm allowed to have 
this space also, like, yes, it's, it's different, um, but there's so much that we get sucked into this idea of professionalism and we get sucked into this idea of like, if I have anything beyond this really narrow box, then somehow I'll look weaker. Um, yeah. and, and I think that um, the gift that uh, her mentorship gave me was really giving me the confidence to be like, no, everything that I do in any way makes me stronger when I get back on the podium because, you know, I'm a full a human and, and hopefully everyone who's coming to art is, but it's, it's a difficult lesson to learn um, because we spend a lot of time learning that we're supposed to do one thing. It, it was, it was mm -hmm. very valuable to have someone be like, no, you, you really can do other things. And it's not, it's not going to be, a, it's not only not bad, it's good. Alexandra Enyard, we, we can't wait for everything to come back to normal in Chicago because you are so, you work so much in Chicago and we're mm -hmm. not seeing it right now, but we will look out for the Orlando as one. Um, good luck with that and keep, keep us up to date with American Opera Project. Thank you. I definitely will. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. It's opera box score. Uh, I still can't watch college sports, so I have no idea what's happening in, in college basketball right now. I'm very content with my Premier League. I'm content with my Red Wings currently tied with the Blackhawks as we speak 2-2 in the third period. Ashley, can, can you stomach college sports right now? I sure can because the Arkansas Razorbacks are in the top 25. It's time for Arkansas sports that are good. It's very exciting. Um, so they actually beat uh, the Missouri Tigers on their on Missouri's court this weekend after getting like creamed earlier in the season. So they're they're getting ready to like finish strong at the end of their season. So this is very exciting. Um, Arkansas basketball is always better than Arkansas football. So this is a very very exciting time for anybody in you know the two and a half million people in that state wearing red. So go Hogs. When he's not busy defending himself against bogus legal claims, Zach Finkelstein is kicking butt and taking names in the investigative <laughs> journalism of Opera Land. Weston, can you set up this story for yes. us? Yes. So um, uh, this, uh, this uh, story uh, broke on middleclassartists.com. Um, and uh, basically, what it what it found was uh, there is a German a, a German critic named Andreas Laska, who uh, he works for Das Opernglas und Res Musica, or at least formally he did. did. Yeah, he past did, tense. Which is a past little tense. bit of a spoiler for you. Um, but uh, apparently, over the past year at least, he has made a habit of reaching out to usually young uh, American. Uh, women in the early stages of their career identifies himself as a German journalist of some kind, um, asks for an interview, and uh, then never leaves them alone until they block him. Uh, and it's it's very very it's it's like this like this like pattern this almost like a this stalkery pattern of like you know he, he sets it up like like he's someone very important which he 
He does have some power as a critic. Um, he uh, he offers to give them German lessons. He insists frequently on them uh, speaking German with him, even though it's not their most comfortable language. Claiming uh, pos- he doesn't speak English. Claiming he doesn't speak English, even yeah. though he almost certainly does. And it, there was one point where he even claimed he didn't speak French with someone who's more comfortable speaking French, and he absolutely does speak French. Um, and it's... It's very, 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 very creepy. Yeah, is so he, what it is. He's approached at least seventy-three women on at social least. media with these so-called requests for interviews that never turn into interviews. Yeah, some singers have tried to get him, tried to actually give him quotes that he never really seemed particularly interested in. There never was any sort of a COVID piece about. Uh, what it's like to be a young singer in COVID mm-hmm, time, mm-hmm. written in German with quotes from all these young singers, nor was one ever requested or authorized by either of these publications that he uh, that he represented himself as working for. And this right. stalking, let's call it what it is, has <laughs> even before the pandemic has always been online or has it ever been in person or do we know? Uh, there's been a little bit uh, in person. It's mostly online because, again, he does seem to target American uh, women specifically, um, and he is based in Germany. But there, there is at least one instance where he initially made contact with a woman um, in Germany when she was there, and there were a few times where he encountered them at performances. Because, as we all know, if you're an American singer, um, going to Germany is... A kind of a goal if you're young, because that's the place where you can learn, you can really grind, you can really uh, make it essentially in Germany. And w- which is why it's so sinister to me that someone who has the power to literally make or break your career early on uh, to give you a positive Seemingly. review in Germany. Um, it's it's just so bad. I mean, I think that there's a lot in like the weird parasocial uh, uh, sort of a relationship between critics and performers. Um, you'll find that professionals, they have to go to as many shows as possible. They start thinking of performers as their friends, as closer than friends. Um, and people like this can really manipulate that into something really, really sinister, even though that, that, that relationship is all, there's always that inherent power dynamic. It's well, like, I'd, you know, yeah, I'd go say, ahead, man. I'd say it goes even further than that because there is, When you are trying to make a career as a young freelancer, you don't want to piss anyone off. You don't want to make enemies, especially not someone who represents himself as having influence and power to blacklist you or speak negatively about you, which it's conceivable. It's totally conceivable that a critic would have that kind of power. All right. So, Weston, you set it up for us. Thank you for that, Matt. You've given your hot take. Ashley, knock it down. What gives? <laughs> this is what we came here for, is Ashley's rant from on this one. <laughs> I know. I promise the only... It, it's not just that they want me to yell at people. I, I, I do other things. It's just that I get really good at yelling at people, I guess. Um, you are really good at it. It's true. <laughs> thank you. I, I will take that compliment. I, I just... I can't... It's... It's... It, I, it's... It's unbelievable. And yet it's believable. I just, why are men? Why are (laughs) men? Just why? Okay, not really. Kind of, kind of. Not all men, but this man makes me mad at lots of men, except for the four that I see on my screen right now. And any of you that are listening (laughs) who don't do the caca that this guy did. Okay, so, all right. What is so triggering for me about this story, um, it's a story that feels so deeply personal and specific 
to this industry where young artists are like chomping at the bit to receive even a table scrap of attention. Like like Matt mm. mentioned, these young artists, they they lower and they humble and they break themselves down to the point that they are in a position of humility with anybody that they come in contact with. So anybody that looks like they could help their career, you are doing a lot of hindquarters kissing because you want these people to like you so so much. And and perhaps it is something that's so specific to this industry, but it's a lot more. Uh, if if you adjust slightly, you know, some of the knobs in this narrative and this storyline, you've got an experience that every American woman I know over the age of 28 has had mm. more than once in her life. Uh, it's the guy that pays too much attention to her in the bar. It's the supervisor at her first internship. It's that weird friend of your dad's when you're a teenager that looks at you a little bit too long. It's it's the boss who you deeply admire and you need approval from for a promotion. It is it is all about power. It's all about precedent. And it's all about that feminine mystique and culture. You're expected to listen. You're expected to smile. You're supposed to laugh off anything that feels uncomfortable, even if you know it's wrong, as just playful talk. Um, I would encourage folks to go and check out this article, but I do want to slap a little bit of a content and a trigger warning on it for my female identifying mm -hmm. listeners, because it's, 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 it's really rough, but it's important reading, I think, but just know that going into it. Um, and so these women have, basically, it's like you, it's a game, you have to play that game, and be humble and smile because they have something that you want or you've been led to believe that they have something that you want. But the second that she dares to say that she's uncomfortable by anything that this person or any of these men in those situations has said, it's her that's the a-hole. It's her that's the one that's being unreasonable. And then comes the gaslighting where like, oh, what? I didn't say that or I did or, oh, you took it the wrong way. So the thing that really, the phrase that got to me in looking at some of these exchanges um. It was the use of the phrase, did I hurt you? Mm -hmm. Because he's doing it on purpose. He did and it multiple me... times, that specific quote. He did it multiple times, and let me tell you why. He's working those words carefully. He's doing two things. He's inviting his nervous prey to immediately like say no to avoid confrontation and like break the thickness that's in the air. But he's also trying to gaslight because if if you if you say, Did I hurt you? The instinct is like hurt often implies physical rather than emotional injury. So he's automatically setting them up to believe, oh, well, if he's not physically like hurting my arm or kicking my leg, then I'm I'm fine, I'm fine. So he's doing that as a way for his victims, and I'm gonna call them victims. He's doing that as a way to automatically absolve himself for his behavior. Uh, it's, it's like the slickest kind of predatory behavior um, because it's almost all based in word and it's almost all based in the humility of what a young artist is looking for which is approval from somebody who presents himself as somebody that's important in the industry i am i am unwilling to absolve him for this behavior i don't think anybody else is he's finally not being absolved anymore like any well-made play this was both utterly surprising and totally inevitable Right. Those are the two key points of any drama. Utterly surprising that the number of women that were attacked online is approaching 100. That is surprising and totally inevitable that somebody like this would abuse their position within this field and do the sort of damage that he did. The article is on middleclassartist.com. You can get to that through our website, operaboxscore.com. <laughs> 
This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. This week's draft pick, Dallas Opera's Director of Artistic Administration has also been named as the Chief Artistic Officer for Santa Fe, replacing Alexander Neef. David Lomeli will continue as a consultant role for Dallas, and he will also maintain his position as a casting consultant for the Bavarian State Opera. Governor Andrew Cuomo announced the launch of New York Pops Up, a festival featuring hundreds of pop-up performances, many of which are free of charge and all open to the public, that will intersect with the daily lives of New Yorkers. Friend of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo, is the operatic talent tapped to participate in Cuomo's campaign to bring the performing arts back. Broadway and opera star and friend of the show, Zachary James, will host the best of Broadway and beyond in his new weekly online talk show, What Happened Was. The new show is part of the Dallas Opera Network and will air online every Friday. What happened was we'll discuss the breakthrough moments of some of the most well-known and beloved artists of Broadway, dance, opera, film, and television. But so far, no mention of opera podcasters. British musicians are starting to feel the pain of Brexit after articles in The Guardian and The Arts Desk featured op-eds by performers caught up in the red tape of a post-EU Britain. We've learned that contracts have to be renegotiated, new visas and permit costs have to come out of the performers' pockets, and new legal restrictions on length of stay have made it difficult to impossible to carry on with business as usual. This is on top of the pain, COVID restrictions, and lost income have caused. In other news, the Pope actually takes communion and believes in transubstantiation. Soprano Joyce El Corey has joined the UK's Peace and Prosperity Trust, an organization that raises awareness and funds for charitable projects in the Middle East and for its young artists. The Canadian-Lebanese soprano joins Richard Bonning, Joseph Kaleha, and Dennis O'Neill as patrons of the Trust, whose royal patron is His Royal Highness the Duke of Gloucester. Five years ago, Natalie Warmerdam, along with two other women, were murdered in a spree that is now considered one of the worst cases of domestic violence in Canadian history. In his grief, baritone Joshua Hopkins, who is Warmerdam's brother, conceived of the song cycle Songs for Murdered Sisters, with music by Jake Heggie, set to poems by Margaret Atwood. Songs for Murdered Sisters premieres on Marquee TV this week and is available to stream until March 19th. All right, this week's Yellow Cards. Spain. Anita Rashvelishvili will give a recital at Bilbao Opera on February 27th. Poland. The Polish National Opera has announced that it will be open by the end of February with a new schedule for March and April. Austria. A COVID outbreak has forced the postponement and two cast changes of the premiere of Carmen at the Vienna State Opera. This week's Red Cards. The Netherlands. The Royal Concertgebouw has canceled the 2021 Mahler Festival. Germany, a bad week for Mahler. Leipzig, Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra has postponed their Mahler Festival to 2023, and Dresden Opera has canceled rehearsals for Strauss's Ein Heldenleben. Monaco, Sir Bryn Terfel's recital at Opera Monte Carlo has been canceled. On the disabled list, Charles Castronovo was hospitalized due to COVID-19 earlier this month. We wish him a speedy recovery. The American tenor who is married to soprano Ekaterina Siorina has been replaced by Piotr Bacala in the yellow card production of Carmen in Vienna. Conductor Zubin Mehta has been hospitalized after a performance of Zalame in Milan. Doctors have prescribed rest and La Scala hopes he will be back to work by the end of the week. Exit stage right, 
Czech soprano Libusha Domaninska has died at age 96. She was known for her work as a company member at Prague National Opera, performing over 50 roles with the company. American soprano Margaret Roberts, known on stage as Margarita Roberti, has died at the age of 95. Roberts was known for her interpretations of Verdi heroines across Italy and the United States. Italian director Stefano Mazzonis di Pralavera has died at the age of 72. Since 1983, his opera productions were performed at a number of important festivals and opera houses in Italy. He has also served as general and artistic director of Royal Opera Liège since 2007. And on this day, February 15th, it was the first performance of Lully's last opera, Armide, in Paris. In 1732, it was the first performance of Handel's Sosarme in London. In 1845, it was the first performance of Verdi's opera Giovanna d'Arco at La Scala. In 1858, Polish-American soprano Marcella Sembrich was born. In 1884, it was the premiere of Tchaikovsky's Mazeppa in Moscow. In 1896, Argentinian soprano Ina Spani was born. In 1926, it was the birth of American baritone Raymond Wolanski. And one for Weston in 1965, the first performance of Beat Zimmermann's opera Die Soldaten at the Stadische Oper in Köln. <laughs> That's your two minute drill. <laughs> <laughs> That is where I want to be. That is Les Plaisirs ont choisi the Passacaglia from Lully's Armide from the new recording by Les Talons Lyriques, conducted by Christophe Rousset. Such a gorgeous recording, but I love that piece so much. It is the sound of heaven. I'd like to be back at English National Opera in the mid 90s, which is when I saw. I mean, don't we all? Zoldaten. <laughs> It was this, Dieselgarten was one of the first operas that I ever saw. Um, and I think it was in this production, it, it had a number of strippers in it. And it was definitely oh. the first time I think I ever saw naked women in the scandal. <laughs> and it was the last time as well. <laughs> <laughs> and now he has a career in opera. <laughs> Oh my uh, gosh, so many so many people on the disabled list and exiting stage, right? Yeah. I just it feels like we're in the dead of winter here, you know. Charles Castronovo. That's, he's not I, dead. I, Don't he, say it like that. He's just in the hospital. I, I mean, I said, not not to say I as of right now, anyway. But he, he he's been in the hospital for a while now. Um, there hasn't been much of an update in the past week or so, but we 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 do wish him a speedy recovery. We but love just, him so yeah, much. Yeah. He's such a gorgeous singer. He killed me singing. Um, Lensky, Lensky oh my, here in that Chicago. That was fantastic. Uh, yeah. And uh, his wife is a Katyna who I, you know, she's Russian, so he gets uh, extra Russian diction coaching. Yeah, and I have it on good authority that it 
his Russian was pretty great. Yeah. I mean, the way that 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 uh, Carmen production is being delayed and delayed in Vienna, I mean, like, hey, maybe he'll be back in fighting form (laughs) by the time that thing actually goes up. But best wishes Uh, go to him. Yeah. Well, we also love Zachary James, of course, friend of the show. And uh, now he's got his own show. (laughs) When I saw the title for this show, I kept thinking of Jason Sudeikis doing that dance. What's up with that? What's up? What up with that? <laughs> I mean, maybe Jason Sudeikis will show up on this show. You never know. That's true. The, the list could go on and on. I'll have to, I have, I have to Mike say, Tomlin. I have to say, as as a, as the audio video editor for this show, I'm already incredibly jealous of his production value already. Mm-hmm. It, it, I was like, I was like, what are you not good at, Zach? Calm down. Leave some for the rest of us. It's <laughs> easily going to be the best show on the Dallas Opera Network. So we'll, uh, have, to, we'll have to get rid of him. <laughs> second best show on Dallas Opera Network. All right. He, he doesn't have Ashley's rants. So yeah, Zach, Zach I'm welcome. watching yeah. you. Zach, you're welcome back anytime. Here's yes, we, we love you. We think you're fabulous, but you just can't get too good. We just we need yeah, to share yeah. the top. Share the top. Here's how we're gonna when we're all back in person, we're gonna settle it by his crew and us go head to head in a flag football game. <laughs> I don't know if I wanna take that. I don't know if I wanna take that. Are you kidding me? He, he, he Zach, is my Zachary J- Zachary he's, Jane. Let me get it let me get out the Sharpie. So Zachary he's like James. two of you. <laughs> No, you haven't. You, I got some speed. It, on that. Imagine, on that. imagine me, but stronger. <laughs> he, yeah. he played Lurch on Broadway. Lurch. <laughs> I saw. I yeah, yeah. Lurch is slow. Zachary James, you're slow on the gridiron. Um, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be saying that if you watched the clip of him dancing at the end of the show. That's true. He's very spry. Baby can move. Oh Brexit! Will we never be oh, free of Brexit. you? It's every every time one of these Brexit stories comes out, it's like, wow, if only this had been totally foreseeable. Oh, wait. <laughs> Everyone said this at the time that, like, any kind of promise of, like, less bureaucracy was an obvious lie. Yeah. And here we are. <laughs> it's yeah. like Florida gets to vote and only Florida on U.S. employment laws. Like, that's <laughs> what this is. That's what this is. Sick time? What's that? Everyone just go get COVID. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It really, it really is disappointing. But I think it's, it is interesting to like learn like how specifically this is affecting um, opera in ways that you know, you know, are are very like direct. Like, um, like specifically, I was surprised by the fact that some rehearsal periods have had to be shortened because the amount of time for the visa is so short um so right. they can't rehearse as much the visa fees of course were something wow. that i think was very predictable and something i would expect but my it's favorite just... co- my favorite kafkaesque moment about the visa fees is that since the embassies and consulates are only open one day a week you have to pay the expedited visa fee which is four times the regular visa fee and these contracts don't pay the kind of money where you can just no. be like, well, let me just quadruple my expenses. What does it no. matter? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Zach Finkelstein lays this out in Middle Class Artists back in the before times. The original. Was, <laughs> yeah. The Facebook post. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> before he was put busting in, heads. <laughs> as singers, we put in a lot of our own money up front yeah. for yeah. coachings, for booking flights, for, you know, um, booking hotels. Uh, you expect to get paid and you expect to be able to pay yourself back, but... There's a lot of front end costs for us um, yeah. who are trying to make it. Even the pros, even people like Christine Gerke who come to Chicago, she has to find an apartment, you know, before yeah, right. she starts rehearsals, you know. And also, like you know, uh, England is you know right there, 
next to the hotbed of opera that is continental Europe. You know, and and like that that's your career. If if you if you were work if you were in school in in England, in Britain to to become an opera singer, you are expecting to jump from country to country to country to yeah. country with no breaks. That's what you're expecting. And all of a sudden there's all these roadblocks, just another thing that especially I think non-established artists have to do. <laughs> it's a channel block. That's it. That's the that's the joke. They just drop the drop. <laughs> it's no, it's flood the channel. It's I mean, you're right, Matt. It's it's not like anybody didn't see this coming. It'll be really interesting to see in like I don't know, two or three seasons into the aftertimes, how yeah. insular the uh, UK opera scene gets. Well, it'll and, be really interesting to see how many more singers decide to stay local. And just yeah. because it was such a, you know, they had bigger problems with negotiating the Brexit exit, the Brexit exit, the action. <laughs> like, you know, are we going to have a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland? Like, right. will there be a war? So, like, the contract of freelance musicians, like, didn't make it high enough on the list to really be addressed. So yeah. I'm sure that we're going to continue to find other, like, uh, other blind spots. Exactly. Where it's just going to cause huge problems for the people who don't have, like, the resources or the talent to deal with that on top of what their jobs actually are. And if British singers are really, and British opera artists are really forced to rely on... England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland for their careers. Like, is that opera ecosystem going to be able to support them? I mean, the U.S. Yeah. opera system can barely support yeah. the opera artists that are in this uh, <laughs> hemisphere. I think barely support is generous, George. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they wave at them. They wave and say, keep it up. You're doing great. I, I have no money, but you're doing great. All right. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad Call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call to take us all home. I'll probably be uh, cross-country skiing back to my house from the, <laughs> from the studio here. Oliver Camacho, you got a good call or a bad call for us? I'm going to give you one of both. Uh, for the first time, I do have a bad call. Uh, <gasps> Premier Opera, which is a company that produces bootlegs for sale, uh, <laughs> has been selling many unauthorized recordings of... Um, uh, performances uh, where the artists aren't compensated. Um, this is a breaking story. Uh, I learned of it from our friend Maze of the Hazer, or Michael Mays, uh, also on Dallas Opera Network. I'm sure he'll be talking more about this soon. But um, yeah, not great, especially in this time when so many singers have their um, you know intellectual property out there, and right. um, that's the only way they're being heard. And uh, it's they're not being compensated. That's not great. Um, my good call, though, is something that I just kind of discovered by accident. Uh, and I hope to draw more attention to it because I think they're doing a great job. It's called the Divas and Drag Italian Opera Company. And uh, <laughs> it is a really beautiful collection of uh, high, high production value videos of famous scenes from opera done in drag. Um, check it out. Dub, they're they're lip syncing to professional recordings. So. That is certainly a bad call. I totally agree with you, Oliver. Music should not be free. Matt Cummings. I've also got a bad call this week, and we did not even coordinate. But my bad call is just to 
you know, rub a little salt in the wound, the gaping wound that is the Metropolitan Opera, they have decided apparently to dedicate this week of their evening live streams to the works of Franco Zeffirelli, one of the whitest people alive. <laughs> That's peak white. People died. When we are in the middle of Black History Month. And like Blanco's effort. There is literally. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah, that's funny. You have literally one job to say that you're living up to Black History Month, and it is to showcase and honor the work of groundbreaking black artists. Something the Met occasionally does try to pretend that they do, but I guess couldn't be bothered this week. And before Georgia cuts me off, uh, along that line, Will Lieberman's new album, Dreams of a New Day, songs by black composers uh, with pianist Paul uh, Sanchez is has just come out to uh, sort of like cosmically rebalance everything with the Met to, to something approaching social justice. Uh, it's a great album. It's really cool. Friend of the show. Check it out. Thank you, Weston Williams. Ashley Hardgrave. Uh, yes, uh, Fort Worth Opera is producing uh, an event that I want to give a little plug to. It's a night of black excellence. Uh, it's going to be on February 21st. It's a live stream. Uh, the uh, the folks Afton Battle and all her people at Fort Worth have put together this really cool slate of folks that are both classical and non-classical artists. Some of the folks are local to the DFW area and some of them are abroad. Uh, it's going to feature some folks like friends of the show Kenneth Overton and Russell Thomas, plus Latanya Moore, Karen Slack. It's going to be February 21st. You can buy tickets at Fort Worth Opera's website. Fantastic. I got a good call. My son and I finally finished watching the very end of The Mandalorian. That score is going to go down <laughs> in the history books. This is Ludwig Göransson who wrote the score. I don't mean just the theme. The final music of the final episode is a string quintet fugue. It's brilliant. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer's Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen the bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us at operaboxscore@gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher or just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is streng verboten. Naja, das war nur ein Witz. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Alexandra Enyert, and your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you begin the Year of the Ox. We're back with an all-new show next week when countertenor Kiman Mura joins us inside the huddle. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more sub-zero temperatures. Join us. <laughs>